In contemporary times, the library is an institution we often take for granted. Most communities have at least one, and they're an invaluable resource for both knowledge and the imagination, regardless of one's level of education or socioeconomic background. But it's important to note that this wasn't always the case. For much of human history, the library was reserved for the select few who had had the privilege of receiving an education. Such individuals were often confined to the upper echelons of society, namely royalty, the nobility, and the wealthy. If a person didn't match any of these criteria, it likely meant that you were illiterate, and therefore a member of the peasant class, the lowest rung of the social order. But despite the exclusivity of such institutions, they were shining centers of learning and culture, ones that enriched the nations of which they were a part. Baghdad and present-day Iraq had a library, one of the largest and best in the medieval world, until it was burnt down by the invading Mongols in 1258. Within that same region, but dating back several centuries, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal boasted one of the most extensive libraries in antiquity, with some 30,000 texts inscribed on clay tablets at his disposal. Today, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., or the Vatican Library in Vatican City far surpass the previous two examples in terms of collections, but yet they even pale in comparison to what many historians consider to be the greatest library of all time. Imagine, if you will, that you were a scholar in the ancient world, a student of one of the many Greek philosophers, perhaps, or an Egyptian mathematician working on an important theorem. Whatever your purpose, there can only be one place for you to turn in which to do your research, the Library of Alexandria. Located on Egypt's Mediterranean shore, it was built under the authority of Ptolemy I Soter, a Greek who served as the first pharaoh of what would come to be known as the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. Though part of a larger complex known as the Museon, or Seat of the Muses, an institution dedicated to the Greek goddesses of the arts, the library served as the focal point and would be the undisputed center of knowledge in the ancient world for four centuries until its eventual demise in around AD 250. What led to the creation of this incredible place? What was it like in its heyday? And who or what was responsible for its downfall? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. After a whopping 30 centuries, or 3,000 years, ancient Egyptian civilization as we know it came to an end in 332 BC. Though the empire had briefly fallen to the mighty Achaemenid dynasty of Persia in 525 BC, a rebellion swiftly restored Egyptian sovereignty over the land. But the Persians, being the greatest force at the time, returned two centuries later for a second attempt. The Egyptians fought tooth and nail against the invaders from the east, though they could only do so much with the armies and resources they had. Their salvation came in the form of another foreigner, a Greek from the kingdom of Macedon in northern Greece named Alexander the Great. In 332 BC, he and his forces stormed into Egypt to drive out the Persians in a decisive victory. So relieved were the Egyptian people that they promptly crowned the Greek pharaoh and proclaimed him their savior from the tyranny of the Persians. But Alexander himself would never get to enjoy his reign over the land by the Nile. From there, he went on to drive the Persians out of the Near East, and, just nine years later, in 323 BC, he died in Babylon in what's now Iraq. Some historians believe he was poisoned, while others claim he died of natural causes, such as malaria or another similar disease. Whatever the case, he died without naming a successor, which led to a violent war of succession amongst his generals. No sooner had the monarch perished was his empire carved up into different factions, each of which clashed with one another for land and dominance. A man named Seleucus ruled over the former Persian Empire in Central Asia. Back in Alexander's native Macedon, General Antigonus assumed command of the former king's throne. And in Egypt, a general named Ptolemy became the first foreign pharaoh, as well as the founder of a dynasty that would last some three centuries. 
The capital of the Ptolemaic Kingdom, as it came to be called, was Alexandria, a city founded by Alexander himself following his expulsion of the Persians from Egypt, hence its name. The city, which hugged the country's Mediterranean coast, proved strategic for trade as well as defense, and in the years following its namesake's death, became a bustling cosmopolitan center. No sooner had General Ptolemy I Soter been crowned pharaoh did he conceive of an idea for a library, one that was destined to be among the great landmarks of the ancient world. But why, of all things, a library, you might ask? That's indeed a great question. The truth of the matter was that there were a number of reasons behind this decision. One of the most logical for the period was that libraries enhanced a city's prestige and reputation. They drew in students and scholars, philosophers and politicians, and did an overall fantastic job of bringing disparate ideas together to be discussed, debated, and studied. Intellectual discourse was indeed a topic of great importance for the Ptolemaic dynasty, and coincides with the flourishing of culture that accompanied the Hellenistic period of Greek history that Alexander the Great had single-handedly ushered in. As such, such an institution would announce Alexandria's arrival on the world stage, and establish it as a center of cultural light. In addition, Ptolemy's goal from the get-go was to establish the greatest library that had ever existed up to that point, collecting scrolls and other reading materials from all over the ancient world, namely Egypt, Greece, and Mesopotamia. The result would be what historian Roy McLeod refers to as, quote, a program of cultural imperialism, unquote, in which the monarch would promote Hellenistic culture throughout the known world. Despite the reputation and renown such an institution would naturally garner, there are surprisingly no surviving historical documents that chronicle its opening. The only sources that have reached us were made long after the library's establishment, most notably a letter written between 180 BC and 145 BC. In it, its author, one Aristeus, claims that the library was founded during the reign of Ptolemy I Soter, and that its first head librarian was none other than a student of Aristotle named Demetrius of Phalerum. It's generally believed by contemporary historians, however, that Ptolemy I laid the foundations for the library, but that it was not fully realized and completed until his son and successor, Ptolemy II Philadelphus's reign. In the transition from Ptolemy I Soter to Ptolemy II, Demetrius of Phalerum is believed to have begun collecting scrolls from Greece namely the works of the philosophers Aristotle and Theophrastus, and the works of Homer. In the late 3rd century BC, several more scrolls were collected from both Egypt and the Near East, adding to the library's vast collection. Sometime in the mid-3rd century BC, the library opened and was as big and grand as you would imagine. As previously stated, the Library of Alexandria was part of a larger building complex, the Museon, an institution dedicated to the nine Greek goddesses of the arts, known collectively as the Muses. Though its exact floor plan and layout remain unknown, it was reportedly lined with Greek columns and boasted a dining hall, several reading rooms, a number of meeting rooms, countless lecture halls, lush gardens filled with both native, that is Egyptian, and exotic flora, as well as the largest collection of written material of any known library at the time. At its height, the library boasted a collection of some 400,000 texts. In fact, the Library of Alexandria proved so influential that it's believed its layout served as the model for the standard university campus we know today. In line with Ptolemy I's initial vision of a collection of all knowledge, the list of the library's materials was ever-changing and constantly expanding. Those who oversaw the institution's operations did this through an aggressive, albeit well-funded, policy of book-buying, in which agents carrying vast sums of money would be sent to various lands, both near and far, to gather as many texts as possible, regardless of author or subject. Older texts were preferred over newer ones, as the reigning ideology of the day was that these works had presumably undergone less revisions than their more recent counterparts, and therefore were more in line with an author's original vision. In addition, a mandate by Ptolemy II ordered that any and all books that arrived on ships in Alexandria's port were to be taken to the library immediately so that they could be copied by scribes. 
This enthusiastic pursuit and promotion of knowledge was unheard of even at that time, but because of it, it's one of the reasons why we still know and discuss the Library of Alexandria to this day. But the library wasn't just home to books. As neither it nor the Museon, of which it was a part, were affiliated with any one school of thought, it was a place of considerable academic freedom, which given the era in which it existed was certainly rare. Still, education at the library thrived, due in large part to the scholars from throughout the ancient world who were given residence there. These individuals represented a wide array of fields, including, but certainly not limited to, mathematics, poetry, philosophy, zoology, and astronomy, as well as research. Each of these scholars was given free lodging, and food as well as a huge salary. They would eat communally in a circular dining hall, and spent their days teaching symposia in the library's many classrooms and lecture halls. According to several ancient sources, the number of scholars in residence at any given time numbered somewhere between 30 and 50 individuals. This was key to Ptolemy I's vision as it not only promoted knowledge and education, but introduced ideas from throughout the known world which could be discussed, studied, and even debated within the library's walls. This added to and enhanced the cosmopolitan atmosphere of Alexandria at the time. Over the ensuing three centuries, the library was the undisputed center of learning and culture, not just in Ptolemaic Egypt, but in the entire ancient world. It saw some of the greatest minds of its time within its storied halls, pun intended, and led the way in such fields as literary criticism, philosophy, and the sciences. But then comes the reign of Ptolemy VII. It fell into decline when he expelled scholars from the Museon altogether. His reason for doing this is hazy at best, but his rule was marked by political instability and further interference from Rome, which, though still a republic at the time, was beginning to expand and build upon its imperialistic ambitions, setting the stage for what would one day be known as the Roman Empire. These expulsions had a plus side, however. They spread Hellenistic culture and learning throughout the known world, as the now itinerant scholars found themselves scattered in places across the Mediterranean as well as the Near East. As for the library itself, it continued to serve the public, though it was no longer the center of cultural light it had been in its heyday. Continued instability within Ptolemaic Egypt, as well as a massive fire accidentally started by Julius Caesar in 48 BC, saw it fall into further disarray. Still, records show, following Rome's annexation of Egypt in 30 BC, that the damaged library was either partially or fully rebuilt, and that it continued to operate for another two centuries. However, admittance to the institution during the Roman period was no longer based on scholarly achievement or merit, but instead on distinction in government, the military, or even in athletics. As the city around it fell into further decline, the library became a hollow shell of its former glory. It's unclear if it was even still in use by the late 3rd century AD, but continued raids on Alexandria by Rome's enemies combined with their retaliatory attacks likely contributed to its complete and ultimate destruction. By AD 275, the Library of Alexandria was no more. For centuries, the greatest library in antiquity remained forgotten. It wasn't until the Renaissance, with its renewed interest in ancient Greek and Roman cultures, that it finally returned to the European cultural spotlight and collective consciousness. Though it left quite a lasting impression in both ancient times and at the dawn of the modern age, the idea to rebuild it would surprisingly not take hold until the 20th century, when, in 1974, the then-president of the University of Alexandria, Lotfi Dovidar, proposed to revive it. Twelve years later, in May of 1986, the Egyptian government, in much the same way as Ptolemy I's Soter had clamored for texts from abroad in the 3rd century BC, called upon the international community through UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, to conduct a feasibility study for the project. Two years later, UNESCO and the UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, launched a worldwide competition for architectural design entries for the new library.
After the winning design was chosen, the Egyptian government set aside four hectares of land in Alexandria, and construction began. In 2002, the Biblioteca Alexandrina opened its doors to the world as a modern library and cultural center, and, in honor of its ancient predecessor, has become a center of international learning and knowledge as the home of the International School of Information Science, whose goal is to train staff for libraries in both Egypt and abroad. The story of the Library of Alexandria is proof positive that, in the words of the great American modernist writer William Faulkner, quote, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past, unquote. In other words, the library's history is a living history, as it not only connects us to our past, but also links itself to the present age. The Biblioteca Alexandrina is a testament to this, as well as to the notion that if we honor and respect our history, it will continue to enlighten us for generations to come. Tradition dictates that an inscription above the shelves of the ancient library read, The Place of the Cure of the Soul. While the original building is no longer with us, I'd like to think that its descendant, which stands a stone's throw away from where the original one stood, is living up to those words. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. I just love libraries, don't you? I could spend hours perusing those shelves. While the subject of today's episode is sadly no longer with us, I'd advise you to check out its modern equivalent the next time you find yourself in Egypt. If you enjoyed this and all my previous episodes and would like to support me to ensure future content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. From there, you'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. <laughs> Don't worry, you won't need an exorbitant sum of money like Ptolemy the First Soter's book-buying agents. Listening and sharing help me as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week as we explore one of the oldest indigenous cultures in Europe, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.